So the question I have to ask you is, how should we respond to such hardship? In today's passage, in 1 Peter 3, verses 8 through 22, Peter addresses believers who are struggling to understand how they ought to relate in a world that does not like them. He's addressing them and how they ought to have love, love for one another, love for the church, how they ought to have a love for their enemies, and how they should love the thing that empowers all love, which is the gospel, a love for the gospel. Flip with me in your packet worship guide, this large pamphlet, to 1 Peter 3, 8, 22, 8 through 22, starting in verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this passage. God, we thank you for speaking through your Apostle Peter to teach us, your church, about how we should respond when life gets hard. Lord, I thank you for teaching us in this passage about how we should respond to those who are against you and consequently against us. And Lord, I thank you for telling us about how you have responded 
in order to save us from the sin that ensnares and corrupts our very lives. Father, we ask that you would teach us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 8 says, Finally, all of you talking to the church have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, and a tender heart, and a humble mind. Now, in this passage that we are looking at today, this is the only verse that Peter uses to instruct the believers about how they should respond to other believers. And because he doesn't spend a lot of time on it, neither will I, but he does talk about it. Peter is talking to a group of people who are in the midst of suffering. Some of them undoubtedly have faced great hardships. Family members being imprisoned, livelihoods being destroyed, perhaps even execution. Others have not faced the same level of suffering. Maybe at worst they received some sideways looks at the marketplace. And yet, Peter calls them to have sympathy. Sympathy means that you, you enter into the experience of another Christian. It means that you share in both their joy and their suffering. There is this intimate sense of unity when you step into another person's life and experience what it is that they are experiencing. And that is what the church is called to do. That is what you are called to do. Peter says that they are to have unity of mind, that they would be of one mind. Now, if you just take a second and, and you look around, even in this size of a group, there are people here that probably drive you a little nuts. People here that maybe you don't understand. People here that you find difficult. And if you look around and there is nobody here that drives you nuts, and nobody here that, that you find it just a little bit challenging to be around, then, then you need to get to know the people here a little bit better. But, imagine that this group right here for all of the luxuries and comforts that we have, imagine that Emmaus Road was in a different environment, where all of a sudden Emmaus Road found themselves in this pressure cooker, being squeezed from every angle. That the stress level was going up and up and up. What would happen? You got one of two options. Possibly, that pressure would cause this body to explode and it would disintegrate and it would separate. Or, that pressure would cause the maze road to press together so tightly that you guys would become inseparable. Peter desires the latter. That as Christians, we are to love those who are part of the church. The ESV translation in here, it, it translates this word as brotherly love. And I know there are some of you here who are not satisfied unless somebody uses a Greek or Hebrew word in a sermon. And so the original word here is Philadelphia, where we get the name for the city, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Emmaus Road, as a church, you are called to get on your any inner Philly and love one another. Now, that does not mean that you have to become Eagles fans. 
That means that you have to have a tenderness, a humility towards your fellow Christians. That you need to step into one another's lives and you need to love one another as family. But the thing about familial love, the thing about families who love each other, that bond together, that grow tight together, is when families face adversity, they have this tendency to do this thing, where they become very inward-focused, isolated. They become isolated from anything or anyone who is outside of the family. And you can see that principle in action just by observing the culture here in northeast Wisconsin. Today... It's March 23rd, and when I left my house to come down here, it was 18 degrees outside. That is adversity. That is struggle. How many of you have not seen your neighbors since October? (laughs) Adversity tends to drive us inward. And when we do that, sometimes we can forget to look outside. We forget to look outside of our own family, outside of our own circle. And so when Peter tells them that they need to be united, when he tells them that they need to have brotherly love towards each other, it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop at the church. That's why it's one verse. We need to love more than just our families. We need to love the outsider. And in fact, he calls them to do something even more difficult. He calls them... To love their enemies. Their enemies. Love their enemies. Verse 9 says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. Christians and non-Christians alike would agree that the golden rule is a good idea. Love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah, let's do that. That a righteous or moral lifestyle should include in some way or another treating others well. And when you do that, in general, life should go well with you. Nobody's going to argue with that. That's why, in verse 13, Peter says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? What he is saying is that Christians and non-Christians alike generally appreciate Christian values. If you live out your life in a way that honors God when you live an honest, caring, humane, humble lifestyle, even if others don't understand you, usually they respect you. If you live out a Christian lifestyle, harm is going to be less likely to come your way. If you are not out there breaking the law, picking on other people, or participating in any manner of debauchery, Things will probably go well for you. But although this is generally true, just as Jesus suffered, we too should be prepared to suffer as Christians. And that's where our behavior needs to contrast with what others might say. See, we are told that we are not to repay evil for evil. It's not an eye for an eye. Instead, we are to love our enemies. We are to bless them. How do you do that? How do you bless your enemies? I mean, every single fiber in our body drives us to either fight back or run away whenever we are attacked. So how do we instead bless those who hurt us? Well, we need to remember a few things. First of all, we need to know that vengeance is the Lord's. If you 
get on your tablet or your phone or your computer and you just do a Bible word search for the word vengeance, you are going to see in the Bible over and over and over again that God will not allow the wrongdoings to go unpunished. He will bring justice. You can trust in that. And so if right now you find yourself suffering as a Christian, you can have confidence that God will make things right. But the second thing that we have to keep in mind is we have to keep in mind that we have a hope. We have a hope that is before us. We don't need to fear or be troubled by suffering. Because just as Christ's suffering led to glory, so will ours. You see, when we suffer as Christians, it proclaims to ourselves and it proclaims to others that we belong to Christ. Who, in verse 22 is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. See, our end is not suffering and torment. Our end is to be with God for all eternity because we are in Christ. And so we need to keep those things, those two things in mind when we suffer because we are Christians. And with those two things in mind, we are told to bless those who harm us. What does it mean to bless our enemies? It means that we offer them the same grace that we have received. I was reading a blog in an online thing called The Prodigal Magazine, and I came across this story that really resonated with me because I was a one-time Starbucks employee, and I've edited this story a little bit to make it shorter, but you'll get the gist. The woman who wrote it says this. Pulling my car into the drive through line at Starbucks, I wondered why it was a dozen people deep. It wasn't raining, yet it seemed everyone was driving through today. I was transporting three dogs to the groomer, and there was no way that I could leave three wild canines alone while I went inside for my daily dose. That's when I saw the woman. She sat across the parking lot, leaving just enough room for a thoroughfare, as she too was waiting at the Starbucks line. I smiled and gestured to her and went something like this. Are you next or am I? Really, it was fine either way. She was not. Thinking I was trying to snag her spot up next, she gunned her suburban, rolled down the window, and lit out a string of expletives that made me blush. Millie barked back a retort. Go ahead, I said. I wasn't sure who was first. I pulled Millie back on my lap so she could see that I had been dog distracted and truly didn't know who was next. She didn't buy it. She continued with the name-calling without taking a breath. Then something really strange happened. Instead of getting mad or yelling back, a sense of empathy invaded me. I looked at her again. And this time I saw someone different, someone who wrenched my heart. Her eyes were red and puffy. Her hair was pulled back in a natty ponytail. She held her phone in her palm, glancing down at it every few seconds, and she was driving that big old gas hog of a Suburban, my own car of choice when I had three kids at home in a carpool. We've been there, all of us. Dog vomits on the sofa. Both kids have strep throat. The garbage disposal chooses to break when you're trying to disintegrate moldy fridge leftovers. Husband is mad because he forgot to pick up the dry cleaning and he's going on a business trip. Sound familiar? And by the way, was that him she had been talking to or texting? She gunned forward just to show me that she could. I left her a wide berth, smiled at her splotchy face. She shot me a sideways scowl and mouthed some colorful comments. Pulling up to the loudspeaker behind her, I said, 
I want to pay for whatever the woman in front of me has ordered, and please tell her I hope she has a better day. I meant every word. The woman idled in front of me for a good four minutes, talking to the barista who had leaned out the window. She shook her head and handed over a bill. She drove around the side of the building, slowly, this time no gunning. Hmm. No takers, huh? I said to the barista as I pulled forward. Nope. She couldn't believe you wanted to pay for her drink after all the names she called you. She said she couldn't allow it and said to tell you she was sorry. She felt really bad. If we are going to bless those who hurt us, we have to be able to see them clearly. We have to be able to see that they are no different than us. The only difference between you and the non-believer who lashes out at you is the grace that you have received. And so we too are to extend that very same grace to them. Now there are a couple of verses in this passage that, that are a little bit confusing about why. Why do we extend grace? Why do we extend that grace? In verse 16 it says, So that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Now, at first glance, it may seem like the reason that we are treating others so well is so that we can rub their faces in it. But that's not the case. See, when the woman at Starbucks was confronted, was confronted with an undeserved love, she felt ashamed. She felt ashamed because her heart was being softened. And she suddenly became very aware of her sin. You see, our desire as Christians is that by offering others grace, that they too might recognize their own unrighteousness so that they might seek after the one who offers us his righteousness. And there's another confusing verse in here about motivation, and that's the second half of verse 9. It says, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Now, when we first look at this, it kind of sounds like we bless our enemies so that kind of like a vending machine, we can get a reward out of it. If I bless you because you were angry with me, then I'd get a popsicle. All right. That's not what it's saying. What it's really saying is that if we truly understand the gospel, then our lives are going to reflect it. They're going to reflect the psalm that he quotes in verses 10 and 11. We are going to turn away from evil. We are going to do good. We are going to seek peace and pursue it. You see, if, if, we, are not, if we are not seeking the good of those who harm us, then we don't really understand the gospel. And that means that we are not blessed. We have to love the gospel. And that's what Peter presents to us. In verse 18, he says, For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, 
that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Jesus Christ, who is the very definition of righteous, was treated as utterly unrighteous. He was put to death in our place. And then he was raised to life so that we might be raised with him. That is the gospel. That is the message of the gospel in its simplest form. It does not get simpler than that. So, of course, Peter follows up this incredibly simple verse with an incredibly confusing verse. 19-21 through says, In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight, persons were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Talking about this part about the spirits in prison, Martin Luther, a guy who is one of the most influential Christians of all time, said this. A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage than any other anywhere in the Bible. Therefore, I do not know for certainty what Peter means at all. The Bible is the revealed Word of God. And the Gospel message is so simple that a child can understand it. Yet, some parts of Scripture are so obscure that the truth of the matter is we may never know what it means. There are a number of different possibilities with this passage, and I'm going to give you my best guess. In Ephesians, um, Paul speaking to the Ephesian church, says, Christ came and preached to you. And when he says that, um, it's kind of weird because Jesus never actually preached to the Ephesian church. What Paul was saying was that Christ preached to them through those who preached the gospel. And I think that in kind of a similar way, Jesus preached the gospel through Noah to those who disobeyed in the days of Noah. The reason that Peter brings this up is because he wants to bring us to this, this topic of the flood. He wants to compare the waters of the flood with the waters of baptism. See, the waters of the flood were waters of judgment by the earth. And, and Noah was brought through, they were saved through the waters of judgment by the ark. In a similar way, we too are brought safely through judgment because we are baptized into the judgment of Christ and brought safely out through his resurrection. Now, that is not saying that the physical act of baptism saves you. That's why he says it's not by the removal of dirt from the body. What saves you is the appeal to God, the claim that we belong to Jesus who brings us before the Father and presents us with a good conscience. See, it is in Christ, and it is in Christ alone, that we can have a good conscience before God. The righteous died for the unrighteous, that we might be made righteous. And because of that, we are joined to Him. We are joined with Him. And part of being joined with Christ is joining with Him in His suffering. You know, it's an interesting thing that it is only in our suffering 
and our failures that we really recognize where our salvation lies. Outside of suffering, outside of our failures, we have this habit, we have this tendency to place our confidence and our hope for salvation in our own abilities and our own accomplishments. It is only in suffering and failure that we turn to and really depend on the truth of the gospel. And it's when you are in that place of total dependence that you love the gospel. And that love is demonstrated by how we share it with others. Verse 15 says, Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the hope, for the reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Have you ever flown in an airplane by yourself or with an odd number of people and you kind of have that moment where you cross your fingers and hope that that seat beside you remains empty? You know what I'm talking about? I have. You just don't want to sit next to that stranger in that uncomfortable, cramped silence and it's just awkward. Usually after I have that thought, the next feeling that I have is one of guilt. Because an airplane is a perfect opportunity to share the gospel, right? Here you are in this spot with a predetermined amount of time where you are stuck next to this stranger that God foreordained that you would sit with. But secretly, you're hoping that they don't notice the Bible in your bag or that Christian book that you're reading because if they do, they might ask you about it. And if they ask you about it, you're going to have to say something and you really don't want to have to say something. And Why is it that we shy away from making a defense for the hope that is in us? Why? Why is evangelism such a scary word? This is going to sound a little harsh. But the reason that we do not share our faith is because we don't really believe in it. I don't know what to say. I don't understand the Bible well enough to be able to tell somebody else about it. I mean, what if they ask a question that I can't answer? Is that you? I'll tell you what. There is always somebody who knows the Bible better. Even Pastor Dan. Even Dr. Reverend Pastor Theologian Bill Acker has only an elementary understanding of the Bible compared to some people. But if you understand the gospel well enough to love it, then you understand it well enough to share it. You know, I, I do not understand football in the same way that Coach McCarthy does. But I can tell somebody why I like football. If you love the gospel, then either your love is ignorant and blind, or you have enough information to make a defense 
for the hope that is within you. Why do you love it? Can you tell someone that? Can you explain to someone why it's good news? If you can't, then maybe you need to think through a little bit harder. Why do I even believe this? But if you can, then you have more than enough information to be able to share it. But maybe that's not you. Maybe your concern is not what to say or I don't have enough information to say, but what are they going to think about me? If I get all religious on them, they might reject me. They might say some mean things. It might be kind of awkward when I ask them to borrow the ladder or the lawnmower. Is that you? What is the message of the gospel? The message of the gospel is that you were once rejected by God, but now you are perfectly accepted, fully loved, completely forgiven. If that's true, if we really believe that we are completely accepted, then what do we have to fear? Being unaccepted? Unloved? Unworthy? That's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is that because of what Christ has done, we are accepted. We are loved. We are worthy. Do you believe that? Our fears, when it comes to sharing our faith, for making a defense of the gospel, they really ought to just go away. If we really believe what it says, if we really believe what we say believe, those fears should go away. Ultimately, when we offer someone Christ, we are blessing them with the greatest blessing that we have to offer. What does it mean when he says that we need to bless those who do evil to us? Offer them the blessing that you have received. Jesus. That is how you bless your enemy. But we need to do this with gentleness and respect. Peter does not say cram the gospel down the throats of those heathens. No, that's not what he says at all. He says... Love them. Love them to the point that they are ashamed because they know just how unlovable their actions really are. Just like us. And how unlovable our actions really are. And yet we are loved. We should not come down on people as holier than thou. First, we need to see ourselves clearly. We need to see who we are. That we are unrighteous. Pitiful vessels of wrath apart from the work of Christ. We need to see them clearly that they are human beings made in the image of God. People from whom we would be no different if not for this gospel message. If not for Christ's love. Christians, we are going to suffer in this life just as Jesus suffered. And that suffering ought to 
drive you to the cross. It ought to drive you to Jesus. To live like Jesus. To love the church. To love your enemies. And to love the gospel. In 1955, there were uh, four missionaries from the United States who were working with native tribes in the interior of Ecuador. Their names were Nate Saint, Ed McCulley, Jim Elliott, and Peter Fleming. And in late September, they found a tribe, the Hua-Arani Settlement. They found it from the air, and they began to fly over this village and drop gifts. It was their way of making contact and establishing a friendly relationship. And they would also use a loudspeaker and broadcast friendly messages in Hua'u. Soon the Hua'u-Arani were sending gifts back to them via a rope back to the airplane. And after three months of this, the missionaries decided that it was time. It was time to make ground contact. And so they landed. And they brought guns with them because they had heard that these tribes had never attacked anyone who carried weapons. And so they decided that if things went poorly, they would fire off some warning shots. But no matter what, they were not going to shoot any people, even to save their own lives. Well, on Sunday afternoon on January 8th, all of the missionaries were killed. They were speared to death. After their death, the efforts to reach the Huarani people was not abandoned, but rather it was intensified. Within three weeks, more than 20 pilots from the United States applied to take Nate, the pilot, his place. And in less than three years, Rachel Saint, Nate's sister, and Elizabeth Elliot, Jim's wife, had not only renewed contact with the tribe, but had actually established permanent residence in their settlement. And what they found out was that when the initial contact on the ground was made, the tribe had feared a trap. And they did not realize that there was no trap and that they had made a mistake until afterwards. Because one of the missionaries who had fired a warning shot off into the brush accidentally grazed a warrior that had been hidden and they didn't know about him. And the tribe realized after that happened that these missionaries had weapons and they had the means to kill them. But they had chosen not to. They understood after this that these visitors were willing to die for the sake of this tribe. And because of that, they came to understand a Savior who was put to death for the sake of all of us. I cannot understand the kind of suffering that Elizabeth Elliot, that, that Rachel Saint experienced as Christians because of the gospel. And you will probably never be in the jungle. You will probably never be attacked by spears. But the way that you live is going to reveal what you love and where you place your hope. Jesus Christ loves you. He suffered death to bring you to God. Don't just confess it with your mouth. Believe it in your heart and live it with your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you did die, that you came and were put to death 
only to be raised and brought to life so that we could be raised with you. Lord, we ask that you would help us to understand and to believe a love that is so amazing that it seems unbelievable. And God, that through that love that you would transform our lives, that we would love our neighbor, that we would love our brothers and sisters in Christ, and even more so, that we would love our enemy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.